Hello, this is your host, Trevor Furness. And before this episode begins, I just want to give you a quick reminder to head on over to patreon.com slash the march of history. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the march of history. Go there and add your own contribution to the march of history in any amount that you can afford. You know, obviously, the more the better. It helps to fund the March of History and helps us to improve the podcast. But even if you can only afford 20 cents a month, everything still counts. So please go there and give a contribution to the March of History so we can produce better episodes and episodes more often. And I understand that not everybody is in a financial position to contribute to a podcast, even if it is their favorite podcast. So if you can't afford to contribute to the March of History, I do understand but I ask that you go to the Apple Review Store, Apple Podcast Store, and leave a review, something nice about the podcast that you like with five stars, and that can be your contribution instead of a financial one. Thank you, and I'll talk to you in the episode. Welcome to episode 42 of the March of History, titled The Conference of Lucca. And if you know anything about the life of Julius Caesar, this is a famous event in his life. We left off in episode 41 with Pompey and Crassus butting heads, starting to get at each other's throats again as they had throughout most of their history in Rome. Pompey thinks that Crassus is behind Clodius, that he is the one pulling Clodius' strings. And let's face it, he could be right about that. Crassus was known to be in the shadows, pulling the strings of young, charismatic, rabble-rousing senators. So this would be a perfect... I mean, this would be the kind of thing that would fit Crassus's M.O. And to go after Pompey like that would also fit in with Crassus' personality. But the trouble between those two doesn't stop there. Pompey, after the most recent trial between Clodius and Milo, thinks that Crassus is actively trying to assassinate him, meaning that Crassus is trying to assassinate Pompey. And he has called in additional veterans from the countryside to form a kind of private army in Rome to protect him from these supposed assassins that Crassus is hiring to come for him any day now. And if that wasn't enough paranoia for Pompey, he also is getting increasingly jealous of Julius Caesar. You see, when the triumvirate began, Caesar was very much the junior partner. He was the instrument or the tool that Pompey and Crassus, the two great men of Rome, used to get what they wanted. And once they received the legislation that they wanted, they duly rewarded their instrument, Julius Caesar, with his own legislation. But he was the junior guy, and he was the guy that did most of the work. He was the consul that passed not only his own legislation, which for any consul would have been a huge amount of legislation to pass, but he also passed all of Crassus's wish list and all of Pompey's wish list. So Caesar was the junior partner that did the majority of the work in his triumvirate, but a lot has changed since then. Caesar is no longer the junior partner he once was. For one, he's gone from being heavily indebted, which he was his entire life. He had incredible amounts of debt. At different times, he had to actually run from his creditors. When he tried to leave Rome to go to Spain for his pro-praetorship, his governorship there, his creditors actually seized him physically and wouldn't let him leave until Crassus stepped in and said, I'll guarantee X amount of Julius Caesar's loans. So for basically the entirety of Caesar's life, he has been heavily indebted, and that has all changed now. He has gone from heavily indebted to mega rich in only a few years' time, and he's only getting richer every day. But in typical Caesar fashion, he's not hoarding this wealth for himself like Crassus does. I think a lot of people, having been in so much unbelievable debt for most of their life, and, and remember, Caesar was supposed to have said at one point that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I believe he said that he needed 25 million sestercii just to own nothing. And he said that in, in a rare moment of 
kind of defeat and negativity for Caesar because he usually doesn't think that way. But even for him, it just seemed an, an insurmountable obstacle to ever pay off this debt that he had borrowed to live this luxurious and fancy lifestyle. And yet here he is, he's actually paid it off and made an enormous sum of money on top of that. And I think for a lot of people, they'd say, well, now that I'm debt-free, I'm going to stay debt-free and I'm going to hoard my money as much as possible and I'm never going to allow myself to go anywhere near broke or anywhere near debt again. But that's not Caesar. Caesar is busy showering, absolutely showering all of his wealth on every single person in Rome. If young Publius wants a nice horse, Caesar will buy it for him. If Sextus wants a beautiful mansion so that he can impress his family and get his wife's family off his back, Caesar's happy to fit the bill. If young Gaius wants to become a quaestor and doesn't have the money to run and campaign for the position, Caesar again is happy to fit the bill. If you have a wife with expensive tastes and she wants a diamond or pearl necklace, Caesar's happy to fit the bill for that as well. Anyone who wants money in Rome is getting it from Caesar. And of course, this money doesn't come free. Caesar is buying friends and he expects something in return from all of these people. But we're going to leave that there for now because in, in a future episode, we're going to go into more detail about what he's doing with this newfound wealth. But I just wanted to make you aware of it for now. And it's not just money that Caesar's gained in, in the few years since he was consul and the junior partner with Crassus and Pompey. Remember, Caesar received 15 days of thanksgiving for fighting the war with the Belgae. That was an unheard of number. Even Pompey, the great war hero, the person that has marched triumphs on all three of the continents that the Romans knew of, Asia, Africa, and Europe, even Pompey has never received 15 days of thanksgiving from the Senate. Caesar is winning more and more military glory every day that he's in Gaul and every day that he's commanding his troops. And for Pompey, it's one thing to have a rival with a different power base than himself. That's Crassus. Crassus gets his power from his vast amounts of money. He gets his power from these fire companies that refuse to put out fires in people's houses until they sell him properties at a fraction of what they're actually worth and, and their neighbors as well. And if they won't pay, Crassus doesn't put out the fire. Crassus gets his money from all sorts of shady business dealings, and he uses this money to finance everyone in the Senate for anything they need and calls in the money, or really, he, he lends it at no interest, and then he calls in the money all at once, which of course nobody can pay. And so that's Crassus's way of saying, hey, you owe me, so you can't pay me back, that's fine, but you're going to vote this way on this, or you're going to come and canvas for this guy's election, and that's how you're going to pay me back. So for Pompey, it's one thing to have a guy who has a completely different power base and a way that he derives his power, like Crassus. It's another thing entirely to have Julius Caesar deriving his newfound power from the same well that Pompey gets it from. That is military glory. And it's not just Pompey getting jealous of Caesar either. Crassus is increasingly getting jealous of him too. Because from Crassus's perspective, it's one thing to have a or one single rival that's above him in military glory, but it's another thing entirely to be the only guy in a partnership of three that doesn't have any military glory. Yes, Crassus fought the war against Spartacus, but the way the Romans looked at that, that was a war against slaves, that was a rebellion, and it wasn't anything glorious. It wasn't like putting down the foreign enemies of Rome. It was like a police action within the state. So for Crassus to be the only member of the triumvirate that doesn't have this kind of military glow to him is just unacceptable. Because in Rome, there's different types of glory, but none of them shine as brightly as military glory. You can make a name for yourself as an orator. You can make a name for yourself as a great senator, a great statesman. You can make a name for yourself as a great lawyer. And all of those things bring prestige and bring honor and to some degree glory. But none of them bring a fraction of as much glory as military glory does in Rome. Because 
Rome is a militaristic society, and the people go absolutely wild for military heroes in a way that they just don't celebrate anyone else in their society. And Pompey seems to alternate between being at times insecure and jealous of Caesar's newfound success, and at other times dismissive, as if nothing Caesar does in Gaul can ever compare to his glory, which was won, on the, like I said, on three different continents, that was mainly one in the east, which is seen as the more prestigious part of the empire to fight a war in, and that basically Pompey sees that he's fought wars in Spain, Italy, Africa, Asia, and what can Caesar ever do to compare to that? And as a result of this jealousy and a few other things, Pompey and Cicero start backing bills to change the legislation that Caesar had made in resettling the poor of the city and settling them in a region known as Campania. This had been one of the trademark, the big landmark bills of, of Caesar's consulship that Pompey and Crassus had helped him pass. This attempt to change Caesar's bill is a slap in the face to Caesar, and Pompey knows it. After all, Caesar had helped Pompey to resettle his veterans on land, and the deal had been that Pompey would then help Caesar resettle the poor citizens of Rome on nice land as well. Now Pompey, in a way, is kind of going back on his word. And part of the reason that Pompey is feeling these kind of jealous feelings and feeling disinclined to continue this relationship and this partnership with Crassus and Caesar is because he doesn't really feel that he needs Crassus and Caesar as much as he once did. From his perspective, his bill to resettle his veterans has already been passed. And his organization of the Eastern Empire has already been ratified. And he now has a brand new special command – Remember, Cicero in, I think it was the last episode, of the yeah, it was the last episode, put forward a bill to give Pompey control of the grain supply of Rome. This was a special command that came with huge amounts of resources, lots of money, and again, the Senate's always against special commands, especially the Optimates, but if there is a special command to be given, it always goes to Pompey, and sure enough, Pompey has this. So he's not feeling like he needs Caesar, and like he needs Crassus like he once did. Of course, he's forgetting that it was Caesar that helped him bring back Cicero, and Cicero is the one who put forward this bill to give this special command to Pompey, but this is kind of the way Pompey works. So the Triumvirate is on extremely shaky grounds, and it's not even secret. It's not even secret issues between the three partners. Pompey is openly saying throughout the city that Crassus is trying to assassinate him, so everyone who's anyone can see that these three partners are starting to fracture, that they are not as close as they once were. And this is the way that Rome is supposed to work. Alliances are built. Inevitably, they have personal differences or their aims no longer align anymore, and the partners break up. And new alliances are formed, and this is constantly happening. It's unusual for the three most powerful people to team up like this and stay partners for a long period of time. But Caesar has other problems too. Like I hinted at in last episode, Caesar's become a kind of a victim of his own success. He has prematurely declared Gaul as being pacified. And now there's people in Rome, senators, using this as an excuse to recall Caesar from Gaul altogether. According to historian Adrian Goldsworthy, there is a tribune that seems to have proposed that Caesar should be immediately recalled to Rome. And one of the leading candidates for the consulship in the following year, so it's, it's 56 BCE right now, and one of the guys running for the consulship in 55 BCE is openly saying and looking forward to replacing Caesar in Gaul after his consulship. And this man, this guy running for consul, is a man named Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. We're simply going to call him Ahenobarbus. And Ahenobarbus actually means red beard. And Ahenobarbus descends from a man who was famed for not just riding an elephant, but also a man who settled the province of Transalpine Gaul. And Transalpine Gaul is now one of Caesar's three provinces. But Ahenobarbus 
seems to believe that this province should go to him, that it's almost his by birthright, that it was his ancestor that created and settled the province, and therefore, after his consulship, the province belongs to him. Now, Ahenobarbus, or Redbeard, as, as his literal translation of his name would be, is not a huge character in the story to remember. But if you do follow his story, he is a constant thorn in Caesar's side. And at times, he's kind of obnoxious. Tom Holland says in his book Rubicon of Ahenobarbus, and at times in this passage, he calls him Domitius. So when he says Domitius, he's talking about Ahenobarbus. He says, quote, Courage came easily to Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. In his case, it was indistinguishable from an arrogance so pronounced as to verge on stupidity. Obscenely rich, obscenely well-bred, he was a man described by Cicero, who was sensitive to such things as having been born a consul designate. End quote. That is a little taste of who Ahenobarbus is as a person. He's an arch-optimate. He's one of the in-click with Cato. In fact, he's actually married to Cato's full sister. And this whole optimate crew, to me at least, seems kind of weirdly close and incestuous. Because they're not just friends with each other. They're not just buddies and pals and political compatriots. They're all related. Ahenobarbus is married to Cato's sister. Then you have Bibulus married to Cato's daughter. And it gets weirder from there. For one, they all seem to clearly hero-worship Cato in a bizarre way, almost an un-Roman way. And to add to the confusion, both Cato's daughter and his sister that are married to Ahenobarbus, or the sister's married to Ahenobarbus, and Bibulus is married to his daughter, but both the daughter and the sister are named Portia. Now, there's another member of this clique, a man named Marcus Junius Brutus, Yes, that Brutus, the Brutus who will go on to assassinate Caesar on the Ides of March. But that's still in the distant future. At this point, Brutus is a man that Caesar treats as a son, because Brutus's mother is the longtime lover of Caesar. And so there's rumors even among contemporaries in Rome that Brutus is Caesar's son. Whether that's true or not, we'll never know if Caesar did conceive Brutus, it would have been when he was very young, like 14 years old or something like that, which is not impossible, but doesn't seem too likely. Servilia was a little bit older than he was. But despite the fact that Caesar treats Brutus like a son, Brutus is very much in this optimate clique, in this optimate sphere of influence. And later when Bibulus dies, that's later in our story, it hasn't happened yet, but Cato will then marry off his now recently widowed daughter, Portia, to who? Brutus. And by the way, I'm not sure if I mentioned, but Cato is Brutus's uncle, which means that Portia is Brutus's cousin. Now you see where I'm going with this whole thing between the optimates as being not just weirdly close and all related through marriage, but also being incestuous. Now, in their defense, the Romans didn't see two cousins as being related. They thought it was okay for them to get married. They had no conception of that as being incest, which is disgusting to today's sensibilities. But the other thing is that Servilia is Cato's half-sister. So what that makes Brutus to Portia, I don't know. You know, your, your half-sibling's child marries your child. It's still pretty gross by today's sensibilities. And another reason why this whole group feels weird to me is because it seems like Cato just marries off his female relatives to people that he wants to mark out as being part of his optimate clique. If you are a bona fide optimate member, then you are married to one of Cato's female relatives. And you can still be an optimate if you're not, but you're not going to be as high in the pecking order. But don't feel too bad, at least for Cato's daughter, who got remarried to Brutus, because 
she seems to have, I mean, you can tell she grew up in Cato's household. She seems to think the way Cato thinks. She's very much Cato's daughter. She's very headstrong that way. She very much believes in the optimate cause. And it seems from at least what I can glimpse of her in the readings that she wanted nothing more than to be married to somebody who was a strong optimate and strong supporter of her father. And if you're wondering why Brutus has barely been mentioned in this podcast so far, if the main reason you know about Julius Caesar is from the Shakespeare play, then you must think that Brutus is a main character in the fall of the Roman Republic. And the truth is, he is. He is in, in the final days. But up until then, uh, up until the Ides of March when he assassinates Caesar, he really doesn't have a big part to play. He's kind of a bookish guy that isn't a man of action. He's not often in the political fray. He prefers philosophy. He prefers books. He prefers reading and writing. And he's just not really a man of action until suddenly he takes an extreme amount of action. And he assassinates Caesar, and then he's leading armies, and he's governing provinces. But for much of his life, this was not his preferred lifestyle. But like the rest of them, he very much hero-worships Cato. And, and probably doubly so, because Cato is not just the leader of the optimate cause, which Brutus seems to believe in, but Cato is also his uncle. So Brutus really does look up to him. But getting back to Ahenobarbus, the, the guy Redbeard that has been trying to run for consul and strip Caesar of his uh, command in Gaul. And, and of course, who's the replacement? It's himself. <laughs> Let's strip Caesar of his command. Well, who's going to replace him? Well, me, of course. Ahenobarbus is one of those inveterate Caesar haters. He's one of those guys like Bibulus and like Cato that just seems to live more so to hate and to get in the way of Caesar than for any love of life, it almost seems like. And going a little bit back in time, back when Caesar had been a consul, and just after he stepped down from his consulship, remember, he had stayed outside of Rome for a while instead of going off to his province and kind of hung there like a spider on a web, waiting for anyone to try to challenge his legislation. And during that period, a couple of praetors came forward and they tried to start an inquiry into Caesar's consulship just after it had ended. And Caesar was able to put this to bed and, and squash this before it started. But one of those praetors that came forward was Ahenobarbus. Ahenobarbus, if you keep track of his life, because he's always kind of a side character, he is nevertheless a thorn in Caesar's sides all the time. And now Ahenobarbus is trying to take Caesar's governorship from him. And later, during the Civil War, after Caesar marches on Rome, Caesar will actually capture Ahenobarbus at one point. And to show clemency, as is Caesar's typical way, he sets Ahenobarbus free. And Ahenobarbus leaves so quickly that he leaves behind a huge stockpile of money. And Caesar sends the money back to him and doesn't touch a dime of it. And Ahenobarbus, in his gratitude for Caesar's clemency and for giving him his money back, what does he do? He turns right back around and starts fighting Caesar again, as if Caesar hadn't just looked past all of his transgressions and hadn't just forgiven him and hadn't just been so generous like this. And he does all this while at the same time showing no clemency himself and no mercy himself to anyone who's on Caesar's side or even to people who are neutral in the whole debate. I mean, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but there will be people during the Civil War that don't really want to take sides one way or the other. They don't see either as a winning proposition. It's a civil war. And Hannah Barbus wants to prosecute even these people. But all that, like I said, is in the future. Right now, Ahenobarbus is just trying to strip Caesar of his command in Gaul, and he's not the only one. The sharks of Rome can smell blood in the water, and they believe it's Caesar's blood, and they're circling, and they're coming for Caesar. But if we've learned anything about Caesar in this podcast so far, it's that he's at his most brilliant, and therefore to his enemies most dangerous, when you put him under pressure. We've seen this on the battlefield in Gaul now time and time again. The man has ice in his veins and he does not panic and high pressure situations seem to just bring out the brilliance in him. 
And if you think for a second that he's let his political skills grow rusty while battling barbarians on the fringes of civilization, guess again. Caesar's about to pull off one of those brilliant political maneuvers that it seems like only he can do in Rome. And it's hard to imagine how somebody without his charm and without his charisma would be able to pull off something like this. Remember, Caesar has been working relentlessly to keep abreast of Roman politics and to keep his influence in Rome, even as he wages a nine-year war in Gaul and writes a masterpiece of Latin literature and governs three provinces. But there's an issue. Politicking through surrogates will only get you so far. Because surrogates lack that one crucial ingredient that makes Caesar so effective and has made him so effective throughout his entire life. That is the ingredient that frightens the optimates so much and causes the common people to gush over Caesar. It's the same ingredient that makes his soldiers into fanatics. That ingredient is his charisma. Caesar's charisma is the oil that makes the machine work. He can be brilliant all he wants, but if he can't get others to listen to his brilliance, then what is all the brilliance for? It's for nothing. And Caesar knows this. So he's determined to meet with Crassus and Pompey in person, because he knows that he's a lot tougher to say no to in person. And he knows that no one will be able to explain his position and his plan as clearly as he can. He knows that he's the only one that can deliver the message in just the right way to get the two whales of the Republic, that's Pompey and Crassus, to bite. After all, he's done it before, and he's the only one in the entire Republic that's done it before, that's gotten these two to work together. There are multiple sources on what becomes known to history as the Conference of Lucca. And Lucca was a city within Caesar's province of Cisalpine Gaul, kind of just on the border of where his province ends, as far south and towards Rome as he could go. Because as a military governor, he was actually not allowed to leave his province and not allowed to, definitely not allowed to go into Rome and into Italy. And that's part of the difficulty. The fact that Caesar can't leave his province, can't go to Pompey, can't go to Crassus. That means he has to convince both of these great men who are very busy and very powerful to come to him, to leave Rome and to go to the I mean, relatively small city of Lucca. This is no easy task. But according to some of the later ancient sources, guys like Plutarch and Appian, not only does Caesar convince Pompey and Crassus to come to Lucca, Somehow, huge numbers of senators get wind of this meeting as well, and they suspect, rightfully so, that the empire is being carved up, and they rush to Luca to be part of this carving up themselves, because they didn't want to miss out on the spoils of empire. Appian even says that 200 senators descended on Luca along with 120 lictors, and the lictors, if in case you've forgotten, are the bodyguards that march with the consuls and with the praetors to signify that a praetor is coming through or a consul is coming through. So 120 lictors signifies that these are not just senators that don't have positions right now. These are praetors, these are consuls, all showing up to Luca to be part of this conference. Or really, I don't think they're even allowed in the conference. I think they're just kind of on the outskirts, hoping to be part of the deal-making in some way or form. And Appian says of these senators, quote, some, meaning some of the senators, repaying him, meaning Caesar, for past favors, others trying to get hold of money, and still others trying to procure some sort of advantage for themselves. All business now went through him, meaning Caesar, thanks to his large army, his financial strength, and his generous treatment of all, end quote. And Plutarch confirms these numbers of senators and lictors as well. But sources closer to the actual event don't make it seem quite so grand or quite such a big deal. It seems far more last minute and far more improvised. 
Cicero, in a letter, makes no mention of huge swarms of senators flocking to Luca to be part of the fray. In fact, Cicero seems to imply that Pompey and Crassus might not even have been there together at the same time. He seems to at least imply that they met separately with Caesar, that Crassus never went to Luca at all, that he went to go see Caesar at another town within his province, Ravenna, before the conference even began. And Crassus had run up to Ravenna because he had become concerned about Pompey's new strength in gaining the special command, and because of this new paranoia that Pompey's displaying, saying Crassus is trying to assassinate him, and to tell Caesar of Pompey and Cicero's efforts to try to undo his Campanian land bill. But we don't know for sure. Even Adrian Goldsworthy says we it's possible that Crassus was there. It's kind of one of those things that Cicero seems to imply in his letter, but never actually outright says that Crassus was not there. But we do know that all of the sources say that Caesar met with Pompey at the very least at Lucca, possibly Crassus too. And Pompey was, at this point, and really throughout the entire history of the Triumvirate, the most reluctant member of this Triumvirate. And it's unknown exactly what was said at this conference. It was held behind closed doors. There were no writers of history present. I mean, there's some sources that give kind of an indication of what type of things were said or the kind of viewpoints expressed, but there's no exact dialogue of it. But we do know that Caesar must have shown up with all of his charisma and all of his charm. He must have used his words to paint a picture at this conference, a true masterpiece of a vision of what the future could look like if the three of them put aside their differences and worked together. And the reason why I say that we know this is because coming out of the conference, Caesar gets everything he could possibly have wanted. For the second time in his career, he has managed to make fire and water coexist. That is Crassus and Pompey. For their entire lifespans in Rome, they have been enemies. They have been rivals. If there was one sure political law in Rome, or, or one of the many, but if there's one certain one at this time, it was that if you found Pompey on one side of the issue, you would find Crassus on the other side of that same issue. It's only been Caesar who's been able to make them put aside their differences and work together, and now Caesar has done it for a second time. These two were typically intractable political enemies. And just think about how wild it is that Caesar was able to make them work together this time when you really think about how poor the relationship has become. Because Pompey even thinks that Crassus is trying to assassinate him right now. Think about getting him over that hurdle. You have to convince a guy who already has a, basically a pathological fear of assassins that his longest running rival and most powerful enemy is not actually trying to assassinate him. I mean, that's like convincing somebody with a morbid fear of sharks that the ocean is a fun place to swim in, or convincing somebody who's terrified of flying to start piloting jumbo jets. Good luck. None of that's going to happen. But somehow Caesar does this. He manages to convince Pompey that, well, we don't know for sure, but I would guess that if Pompey still thought Crassus was trying to assassinate him, he would never have signed back up for this partnership. So he must have convinced Pompey that either A, Crassus was not really trying to assassinate him, or that really that's the only option I can think of, because if Pompey still believes Crassus is trying to kill him, why would he sign up for this partnership again? Caesar manages to make the pair of them look past their hatred of each other, and he does this by focusing both of them on self-interest and self-gain. There is no altruism here. Caesar knows his audience. Both of these men are power-hungry and money-hungry, and Caesar knows how to motivate them. And at Luca, it's decided that Pompey and Crassus will again join together and run for the consulship. It's been over 10 years since they've previously been consuls, so they're technically allowed to be consuls again, 
And this serves the double purpose of one, getting them into power where they can look after all three of their interests. And two, it blocks Ahenobarbus, the Redbeard guy, from gaining the consulship and trying to take Caesar's command away. Caesar, for his part to help, will send a contingent of soldiers led by Crassus' own son to go to Rome and to boost their voting power in Rome and to act as muscle for Pompey and for Crassus. And they're going to need that muscle. This is not going to be easy. And of course, all three of their clients, all three of their considerable client bases will combine together to work towards their election. And here's the key. Once elected, they're going to work towards awarding themselves magnificent provinces with armies all for five-year terms, just like Caesar got. It's kind of like these two have sat by for the past few years, watched Caesar with this unheard of five-year command over three different provinces on the borders of Rome, fighting whatever wars he wants, winning military glory, winning money, being the talk of Rome. And they're all thinking, I didn't really realize that that was an option. But now that I know it's an option, I want that too. And it's unclear if the exact provinces were decided at Lucca. I mean, technically, they were supposed to be drawn by lots and given out at random. How much corruption went into that lot drawing process? I don't know. Rome was an extremely corrupt place. But in the end, Crassus will receive the governorship of Syria for five years. And Pompey will receive the governorship of both Spanish provinces again for five years. And Syria, the one that Crassus got, is a border province. This gives him the chance to wage war and win glory. This matters to Crassus. Crassus has spent the past few years watching Caesar win military glory. He has spent his entire life watching Pompey win military glory. He is jealous and he's feeling insecure and he feels like he's missing out. Crassus has major FOMO. Well, he says, no more, no more of this FOMO. I'm going to go out, take my own command, and win my own military glory. And going into the conference, Caesar knew this about Crassus. He understood his psychology. He knew that he was feeling left out and jealous, and like he was the only one without these military honors. And he knew that getting Crassus a province on the frontiers where he could win military glory would motivate Crassus. And it should be said that another reason why not everyone would do what Caesar's doing with these guys is not just because they lacked his charisma and charm, but also because a lot of people, especially in Rome, but you see this all, all over the place in history and in life, they're more focused on stopping people that they don't like from getting what they want than from focusing on getting what they themselves want. And a lot of Roman politicians would have said, no, I don't want Crassus to get military glory, and I don't want Pompey to get another province. I just want things for me. And you know, they would have let their insecurity of what Pompey and Crassus could achieve with that province get in the way of them getting spoils for themselves. Caesar never worries about that, because he knows if all other things are equal, if you give all three of them nice provinces with armies on the borders— Caesar has enough confidence in himself and in his abilities to think that he's going to win more military glory than the other two guys combined. Now, Pompey's provinces, the, the two Spains, are also border provinces. There's been trouble there recently. There's chance for military glory, which Pompey already has in spades. And not all of Spain is under Roman control, so there's a chance for conquest as well. But Pompey kind of weirdly has no desire to wage another campaign. I mean, he doesn't want to be left out. He doesn't want to be put on the sidelines, but he doesn't really feel like leaving Rome and going to fight another war. That's tough. That's brutal work. That's not easy. There's a reason why glory comes with fighting wars, because it's brutal, difficult work that requires you to be away from home, away from your family, and away from all the comforts of Rome. Pompey's been there. He's done that. And at this point in his life, he would much rather tour the gardens of Italy with young Julia, Caesar's daughter, than be out on campaigns surrounded by a bunch of burly men. But Pompey is able to use the special command he has with the grain supply to justify being governor in abstentia. 
So he will govern his two provinces from Rome rather than from the provinces themselves, which means that he will have surrogates go out to the provinces to command the armies, fight the wars, and govern the provinces for him. This is unheard of. This is almost downright un-Roman. I mean, any Roman would jump at the opportunity to go out to have even one province, never mind two in, in, in a great command like this with the potential for war. And you got to imagine there's so many senators sitting on the sidelines that would like great provinces that aren't getting any because Caesar has three of them, Pompey's got two of them, Crassus has Syria, and they're thinking in Pompey has this beautiful, shiny toy, toy, these two provinces, and he's not even playing with them. <laughs> he's not even using them. You at least give somebody else a chance to go out there and win some glory for themselves, Pompey. You've got plenty of glory yourself already. But Pompey doesn't see it that way. Like I said, he doesn't want to play the game anymore, but he doesn't want to be left out either. And governing in abstentia is exactly what Pompey wants. It's all the money and the power of being a governor of two provinces with none of the work. But in the end, of course, this will backfire. Because as Pompey is touring the gardens of Italy with Julia, as he's sitting in Rome figuring out the grain supply, Caesar is actively campaigning and fighting wars in Gaul. He's sharpening his edges. He's getting better and better as a commander. His troops are getting more and more experienced. And in spending time with their charismatic commander, they're becoming more and more devoted to Caesar to the point of fanaticism. But it is interesting to speculate what would have happened when the Civil War comes if Pompey had spent five years or four years commanding troops in Spain. If they had been commanded directly by Pompey, drilled by him, trained by him, if they had spent time fighting with him, growing to trust him, and if he had some kind of loyalty, even if it wasn't quite like Caesar's troops' loyalties, still a, a higher loyalty to him and a more disciplined veteran army and at his command in Spain, if when the Civil War came, if Caesar still would have chosen to march on Rome, knowing that Pompey from Spain can just march on Gaul, or if... Caesar would have marched on Spain and fought Pompey's veteran legions right then and there. It's hard to know how history would have turned out differently if Pompey had utilized this time to really create a well-oiled machine of an army like Caesar's been doing. But all of that is too much work for Pompey at this point. He feels like he's put in his hard work in this empire already, and he just wants to coast to this point. And what's more, he can't imagine, I mean, he alternates, but at many times he can't imagine that anyone can ever become a better general than he is, or become more powerful, or gain more military glory. At times he feels insecure, but then after time, after thinking about it and talking about it with friends, he'll dismiss people that he's jealous of as people that can't possibly be as strong and powerful as he is. So that covers Pompey and Crassus. But what does Caesar get for remaking this alliance and creating a plan to give them both provinces? Well, humble Caesar only wants to, one, confirm his existing command and stop the attempts to take it away from him from Ahenobarbus from Redbeard. And two, he wants to renew his existing command for another five years. That's a total of a 10-year command over three provinces. And he wants this so that he can finish his war in Gaul for good and because he's thinking ahead. If he can get these provinces renewed for another five years, then that makes him immune from prosecution. And then the total time between his last consulship and when he would step down as governor would have been 10 years. That would then give him a chance to run for the consulship in Rome again and therefore become consul and immune again. And then as consul, he can then find a new province for himself and head back out into the provinces to fight more wars and be immune for presumably another five years. At this point for Caesar, and maybe always for Caesar, politics is truly life. It's not as if he can even step down and retire if he wanted to. The second he steps down from commanding armies and from governing provinces or from being consul he's going to be prosecuted by every optimate possible. And Caesar just 
as not an option for him. So he needs to stay in command. He needs to stay with armies and, and, and controlling provinces. And this is all because of what he did in his consulship. In his consulship, in, in reaching for that grand ambition of uniting Pompey and uniting Crassus and passing all that probably much needed legislation, he pissed so many people off and made it so that the rest of his life he would always have to be looking over his shoulder and fending off political enemies. A peaceful life in the countryside is no longer possible for Caesar, if it ever was, but he's kind of well-suited to this lifestyle, because I don't think he ever did want a life like that. He wanted the action. But Caesar has a few additional wants, in addition to having his provinces confirmed and, and renewed for another five years. For one, he wants Cicero and Pompey to desist from all their efforts to trying to alter his land reform bills that he had passed as consul. And he wants the Senate to take on the burden of paying for extra legions which Caesar had recruited without their permission. And here Caesar is, again, looking out for his soldiers, making sure that the Senate is going to pay his soldiers. But even Plutarch says that this is kind of seen as ridiculous, because Caesar is now mega-wealthy, and he's throwing money out to everyone in Rome, and at the same time, he's asking for the Senate to pay for soldiers, which they didn't give him permission to raise to begin with. But Caesar gets everything on his wish list, including his soldiers paid for. And so will Pompey, and so will Crassus. All three of the men will now hold special commands for five years over multiple provinces, or in Crassus's case, one very powerful province, and all three provinces or all three areas they're governing over are on the borders of Rome and have the ability to wage war and win military glory. But, first things first, Crassus and Pompey have to team up to win the consulship before any of that is possible. And to do that, they'll have to defeat Ahenobarbus, who will be heavily egged on by his brother-in-law Cato. And that's not an easy task, even with the combined might of the triumvirate, because remember, Cicero described Ahenobarbus as a man who the consulship was practically his birthright. He fully expects to win this. And author Tom Holland points out that to most in Rome, it was clear that something had happened at the Conference of Lucca. But what exactly? Holland writes from the perspective of the ordinary political observer in Rome who had been looking from a distance at what's happening at this conference when Caesar meets with Pompey and, and possibly Crassus, and they would have been wondering, and here's what Holland says. Holland says, quote, And yet it seemed barely credible that Pompey and Crassus could have patched up an alliance a second time. What compact could they possibly have reached? And what of Caesar's role in the murky business? What was he after now? End quote. Well, of course, we know exactly what Caesar was after. But like I said, the consulship won't come easily to Pompey and Crassus, and they will need to fight tooth and nail and to marshal all of their power and resources to get this consulship. But we will cover that next time in the March of History. But before I go, I want to make a few announcements, a little bit different. So... This episode is being recorded in early October, and I will be headed to actually Paris in late October. And the reason I'm going to Paris is that I will then take a train down to the battlefield of Elysia. Now, we haven't gotten to Elysia yet, but I want to make sure I get there and film some things there before the episode comes out on Elysia. But if you're unaware of Elysia, Elysia is considered Caesar's greatest battle in Gaul and perhaps his greatest battle ever fall all time. At the very least, his most famous battle against the Gauls. And I'm actually going to head to this battlefield, and I have a nice camera I bought and a nice microphone, and film a whole YouTube video for you guys so that you can see what the battlefield actually looked like, what the hilltop city of Elysia, or at least the hill is still there, you can see, looks like, you know, what the surrounding area that Caesar would have built his walls looks like, what the current Gallo-Romanic village that's the ruins of which are still there can, can be found and what that looks like. 
So I'm going to hike all around the hill that Elysia was built on. We're going to see if we can find any Roman ruins or remnants in the area, maybe any ditches that Caesar dug. Sometimes you can find these ditches still there thousands of years later if they were dug deeply enough and give you a visual representation of Elysia in addition to a podcast episode. Also, while in Paris, I'm going to see Napoleon Bonaparte's tomb because as a fan of military history, I can't miss that and possibly the catacombs of Paris and more. And another announcement, in December and January, I have a winter break from my duties as a teacher here in Valencia, and then I will be heading to Rome and to Naples to see all of the ancient Roman architecture and history in Rome and in Naples. Of course, I'm going to head to Pompeii, and I'm going to head to Herculaneum, and I'm going to head to Capri to see the island that the Emperor Tiberius kind of withdrew from Roman politics onto and more. So stay tuned for all of that, and I hope to film all these things for some YouTube videos it's taking a while to process, to you know get through all these YouTube videos I've filmed so far uh, of the different Spanish historical sites because I just don't know how to edit video and have no idea what I'm doing. So uh, it's been baptism by fire, but eventually I will create this YouTube channel and start getting videos out for you guys to accompany this podcast. That is it for today. I guess the last thing is to follow the March of History's Instagram is at the March of History. The Twitter is at March underscore History. The Facebook, you can just search the March of History. And please leave us a review in the podcast store. Actually write something out that you like about the podcast because that sticks out a lot more than just leaving the five stars. But we do appreciate the five-star reviews as well. So thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the March of History. <laughs>